economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lou Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gorney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gorney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gorney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our graduate assistant elect, Boston Medlin. All right, well, we're here today to kind of celebrate our 200th episode. Uh, it's hard to believe I started doing 200 divided by 52. That's like approaching four years. Uh, so I've been a part of it the whole way. Justin then joined in and now we have Peter uh, for a solid, uh, what has it been, two years now? Yeah, two know? years of bad quality. <laughs> <laughs> two years of questionable service <laughs> to the podcast. No, no, it's been great uh, working with uh, you know, the three of us and then we have uh, interviews. So. Uh, we have some guests in the audience. We're uh, recording now at Ottawa University, and we invited people to uh, come and just listen to us. We've done a few of, uh, events like this, and it's been kind of fun uh, to get audience questions and just kind of take things as they go. As part of our celebrating this 200th, um, I thought each of us could comment on maybe some of our previous favorite podcasts, and then we can put those in the show notes and maybe people want to uh, check those out. So, uh, Justin, you want to start off? Uh, sure. I have I have two favorites, but they are related. So the first one was one we did, um, I think, two and a half years ago, and it was uh, about uh, changing our minds, um, yeah. where I asked everybody to bring in something oh, yeah. that we had changed our minds about and and then explain why we changed our minds, like what the reasoning behind our change of position was. Um, and I thought it was really fun to see what people had changed their minds on. Um, but my favorite thing about it was how hard it was to get everybody to to say the words, I was wrong before and I changed my mind. Uh, no, like, I should like literally say, no, say you were wrong. Uh, people would say, well, I don't think I was wrong. I just changed my mind. Like, uh, <laughs> growing as individuals. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that was great about that podcast was, of course, that Peter wasn't there yet. Uh, <laughs> I was going to bring that too. Uh, no, uh, and then the, my uh, other favorite podcast was what we did at the beginning of this year when we made predictions for this year. Ah, yeah. um, so if you go back and look at those predictions, if we talk about being wrong, you will see uh, that I made some predictions that were wildly wrong, right? <laughs> um, so I, I think I, all mine were right. You also we'll wouldn't say you were wrong in the previous one. <laughs> <laughs> this is the pattern. Yeah, so, uh, so I bet on the Packers. I yeah. remember that. So yeah. that was a bad choice. Oh, that's right. We did yeah. the Super Bowl. Yeah, I so the Bengals, and that was close. Hey, yeah, you almost made it. So I think uh, publicly making mistakes and owning up to them is like really uh, fun and important, and I think that it's good to model that for. Uh, you know, for our students and stuff too. So those those would be my two favorites for that reason. All right, Peter, what about you? Yeah, so I was actually just talking about this uh, this podcast uh, a moment ago. Probably my favorite is the Philosophy of Mind series that we did actually relatively recently. 
And the reason is I've been growing up and sort of, I, I remember campaigning door to door when I was like four or five years old. I've been doing politics my whole life. I'm exhausted with politics. Unfortunately, that's what people really care about when you're an economist. It's like, <laughs> oh, what about this policy? What about that policy? And so even though a big part of, well, being an economist and my earlier life was being involved with politics, I get tired of politics. What I prefer, and this is true, is I like to just be a contrarian. Uh, and it's really easy to be a contrarian when you're the dumbest person in the room. And so when we talk about philosophy, that's me because I'm not a philosopher. And so I really like questioning uh, certain orthodoxies. And when I don't know what the orthodoxies are, that's very easy. And so Justin will talk about philosophy of minds and I'll ask like a really basic question about philosophy or try to show that a very like well-accepted thing is wrong. And I usually mess up uh, because again, well-established orthodoxies are established for a reason, uh, but it, it, there's more growing in that. I'd rather be the stupidest person in the room than the smartest person in the room because there's a, a chance to grow. Well, that teed me up nicely because I, I, I work with two people that are sharper than me and that's what I enjoy about <laughs> the podcast in general. Uh, my favorite podcast, I think, was back to Russ Roberts, and this was before Peter's time. Justin and I were on it. Yeah, I see. And, uh, uh, so he talks about Adam Smith, and I think it's the often misunderstood Adam Smith. It's something that I like to try to bring to the classroom, that uh, it's not all about what making money and wealth and income. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time in that podcast. Uh, he wrote a book called Why Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, and he talked about really what Adam Smith put forward was that humans want to be loved and to be lovely. And that was literally how it was. Like we seek to be loved. So we want to do things to get, you know, people's attention. And, uh, but also to be lovely, we want to be proud of our own self. And so uh, we spent the kind of the first half of that. And then uh, Russ Roberts is Jewish. And so we got to explore his faith and, and how that ties in with economics. Uh, we've also had a Nobel prize winner, Vernon Smith on the podcast um, many years ago. And that was a pretty awesome uh, experience to have the Nobel laureate and talk about his faith in economics. And he's also a, an Adam Smith expert. Um, so those are uh, some of the favorite ones I've had. Um, the, I loved doing the philosophy ones too, the, the trolley problem and the free will and all of that stuff. And we look forward to doing more of those uh, episodes in, in the upcoming year as well. Yeah, I, I think that's one I would have liked to have been a part of. It was an undergrad teacher of mine who first introduced me. Oh, to you fact. had him for? No, no, no. Oh, an undergraduate ah. uh, professor of mine first introduced me to that fact that okay. if you look at Adam Smith, it's like uh, one section of the entire book, Wealth of Nations, is about the invisible hands. Uh, and then Adam Smith has another book that's basically the same size called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. I mean, there wasn't a such thing as an economist when Adam Smith was around. Uh, and there wasn't even economics. There was political economy. And so Adam Smith is a, a, a philosopher, and you could even say a political philosopher, and people often misunderstand e economics as this narrow thing that only has to do with yeah. uh, wealth and money, like you pointed out. Yeah, so, yeah we're on more on the humanomics side. So I, I hope that people, listeners, get that through the podcast, and my students get it in the classroom, that, that it's a lot more than maximizing GDP and maximizing income or utility, that there, there's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on in economics. Not more than maximizing utility. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Well, that's kind of a quick rundown. Um, let's let's go ahead and turn towards the uh, crowd here and see if we've got an opening question. All right. Dr. Bill Sutsui here at Ottawa University. I know we're going to get clobbered here. That should be good. <laughs> well, uh, I just want to congratulate you all for the Institute for the series. 200 uh, episodes is pretty phenomenal. 
so uh, ever since I've been in the academy, we have had a crisis in higher education. Right? You know uh, that uh, uh, things are getting uh, worse. The economics are moving against us. The business model is broken, uh, uh, and we expect waves of college closures uh, over the coming years. Uh, and yet, while there have been hard times with higher ed, uh, it has always found a way to bounce back. Uh, there's a recent book out by the president of Temple University in Philadelphia and Jason Wainberg called The College Devaluation Crisis. And in that, he makes the argument that the main crisis facing higher ed today is not demographics, which we've talked about. It's not uh, student debt and all those associated issues. It's the fact that people just don't believe in college would be important anymore. And I wanted to hear about your opinions on that. Uh, uh, perhaps not your opinions as uh, professors at a liberal arts Christian university, but as economists, you know, is a college degree worth that? And if it is or isn't, how does it relate to change in the economy uh, that we see going? And is it a temporary phenomenon uh, that will change uh, in a recession, say, that's uh, coming, or are we looking at a fundamental sea change uh, in the value of higher education in the American uh, economy? Uh, and uh, we've got argued that we are, and that higher education has to adapt significantly uh, uh, to this new reality. Okay, well, um, I think education is something uh, I, of course, am involved with as a profession, but also just uh, interested in overall for, for society. And I think we really went wrong with the focus of education, that it was got to get a degree, got to get a degree. And we really lost the education part of it somewhere along the line. And this has been a slow burn over time um, that we have the teach to the test, no child left behind, et cetera, et cetera, where you're, you're really losing focus on, is the student getting educated or are we just moving them through the, through the process? And I think it's finally catching up with us. And I, I think God bless the market system. We're starting to see bubbling up of uh, counter to that. So um, 40, 50 years ago, the education system was primarily controlled by the government through our K through 12 system. And then uh, of course, even our private nonprofit uh, university uh, has an element of control from the federal government because everybody's got their student loans. And so if you're if you want to go to this school and have a student loan, then this school has to meet a certain amount of criteria. And so there, there's still influence that that direction that pushes some of these, I think, unnecessary uh, get a degree and, and jump this hurdle and meet this meet the standard. Um, and so it, it's a slow process that I think is finally coming to roost. And so some of these private alternatives of the online education, I think Khan Academy was one of the early pioneers of uh, you can learn some useful skills and, and uh, maybe employers will start to find some of that useful. And then other places have gotten into certifications. And then um, uh, Milton Friedman many moons ago talked about having a school choice so that students weren't didn't have to go to the school they were designated because of where they live. And so ultimately the charter school system has been evolved and that's been an ongoing experiment with uh, successes and failures in some cases, more successes than failures, by the way, if you look at the data. Uh, but I think it's important to say, it's good that we had a few failures because that's what the market system does. It's not so much a profit system where everything's always going to be rosy, but the important part is 
if a school emerges that's not doing the right thing and they fail, they go out of business, that's great. So in some ways we should celebrate that there is uh, both successes and failures in some of those uh, more market experiments of, of uh, having education come in a different way. Yeah, this is, this is a, a tough question. I, I wanna highlight one of the things, Bill, that you mentioned, which is that I think humans in general have a tendency to really be pulled into pessimism uh, very easily. And so it seems like every industry you're ever in is always in crisis all the time. And like just around the corner is the end. Uh, we've talked about this actually before on the podcast. Well, you know, the only thing in the in the entire world, if you track long run trends, that is becoming more scarce, and by more scarce I mean the price of it is going up over time, uh, is human skills. Uh, it's the only thing. It's the only good or service that's had sustained growth in price uh, for more than a decade. Uh, you, th that's wages, right? You look at wages. Uh, oil, no sustained increase. We have fluctuations, but it's basically more or less the same as it was 50 years ago. Um, you know, other natural resources, copper, you name it, these are all the same, energy. Uh, so their upper education or higher education, uh, you know, flaws or not, something that it's doing is increasing the value according to most of the people on the market of, of human beings. Uh, I, th I think that's certainly true, uh, or the value of their services, rather. On the other hand, I, I think we are starting to recognize some of the, the shortcomings uh, of recent upper education. And so uh, I think my best, my favorite example of this is what's called the sheepskin effect. That is, you could have like, we can imagine an engineering major who finishes 117 college credit hours and maybe the course that they're short is like, they could take, let's imagine I took exploring the universe once uh, in undergrad as one of my courses. And so let's imagine this engineer misses exploring the universe, they decide not to finish. Uh, and then track that person's wages. Well, what we find is that people who finish that course are rewarded a significant amount in wages compared to people who don't finish that course. In other words, a person three credit hours short gets rewarded like way more than just three credit hours worth uh, of value. And so there's something weird that our society values actually getting the degree uh, rather than the courses or the knowledge itself necessarily. So the degree itself has a, a weird value attached to it. And I think that there is some overformality uh, associated with this, whether it came from higher education or industry uh, is kind of unclear. But if you look back, you know, I was looking at like history of Ottawa University, uh, things used to be a lot more informal in a certain sense for taking courses. The requirements were a lot less clear. Uh, you know, it's not like each course had a syllabus. Uh, there wasn't this ABC standard. There was a lot of pass-fail oral examinations. I think uh, maybe industry has pushed us in the direction of wanting very formal standards, but I think what we're going to find is uh, more informal standards are, are going to be more important. So maybe degrees are going to end is my final answer, but I don't think upper education will. I don't think college will end. I'd actually like to see a world where more people come to Ottawa University for a few classes, right? People in the Ottawa area who want to learn something. I think that's higher education working well, uh, is when you're not just pursuing the end, you're pursuing education itself as the end. And that looks like uh, I think a less rigid set of requirements being fulfilled. If that makes sense. Um, I agree with Peter that people are naturally pessimistic. And I also think that academia selects for a kind of neuroticism. <laughs> um, so I, it doesn't surprise me that 
academics, you know, we often hear from other academics that, you know, the house is crumbling, right? Um, but one thing that actually surprised me, and I think in a positive way about the pandemic was that I think before the pandemic, we heard a lot of things like online education is going to just take over higher ed and things like Matt, MOOCs or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, these are the future and you can just get certified online. Um, and then the pandemic hit and we tried that. Everybody tried that. And the collective uh, response to that was, this is terrible, right? Um, and uh, so it seems to me that there is a big demand, both on the teaching side and the, uh, the student side, for in-person learning in classes of around 25 people. Um, and I actually didn't foresee that as much. It was a welcome surprise to me. So that makes me think that uh, some of the um, forces that you know, are supposedly going to destroy the university, that there's, there's actually some demand for the kind of services that traditional universities provide um, maybe in a way that I didn't see before the pandemic. So. All right, well, believe it or not, time flies. This looks like a good spot to take our break. Um, I had a, one thing to say maybe after break on the, the sheepskin effect. I'm not sure that the degree part isn't all bad as a signal in the economy where we get a lot of benefit from uh, not knowing and knowing each other well, we can still have a lot of harmony. And so that degree helps signal that. I don't think it's always rich enough, right? And so, oh, wait, wait, well, we'll just do one. Yeah, I, so I love pushing back on Peter and see what he comes back, but we'll, uh, we'll let Peter respond to that and, and a few more questions after we get back from our break. We'll see you in a bit. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics, and economics. Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and then participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our everyday economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we will have an integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of $200. If you know some students interested in programs like these, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. The Gordon Institute is offering free economics classes to homeschool students in the Ottawa area. Uh, in these classes, we'll cover things like scarcity, supply and demand, and some common economic fallacies. We're running through our first course right now, the first section with students, and they're really enjoying it. If you're interested in having a class for yourself or one of your children, uh, please contact Peter, Justin, or us today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit the Gortney page on the Ottawa website. All right, so we're back, and I, I had to comment that maybe this degree business isn't all bad, especially if there's substance behind the degree. That's that's kind of what we're getting at. But 
And I just wanted to bring up in a commercial society, we do use signals to try to make the market more efficient. So imagine Ottawa University is trying to hire uh, a new position. And um, one of the ways we filter through a thousand applications, I don't think we usually get a thousand, but let's just say some, some jobs do have a thousand applications is a sorting mechanism to say, there's gotta be a good pile of half of these have undergraduate degrees and the other half don't. I might be overlooking half some good people and that don't have an undergrad degree, but there's gotta be a good one in this 500 of undergrad degrees. And so it, it acts as a sorting mechanism and, and, a, and a way for people to signal that, hey, at least I made it through to a degree. Now, if that degree is a Cracker Jack degree, then that's another story, but I don't know. What do you think here? Yeah, so Brian Kaplan has his book, like The, the Case Against Education is the name of the book, very provocatively titled. Uh, and his argument is this, that the sheepskin effect signals some sort of conformity, that you're like willing to step through the hoops that other people are willing to step through and that's, or you're willing to commit to it, signal something about you. I think that's fine to want those things, but I also think just in general as a society, we actually overvalue conformity pretty significantly and we undervalue sort of like weird uh, different approaches. Uh, and uh, yeah. this is this is me like being biased because, you know, for example, I, I homeschool my kids uh, and we're not going to do, you know, math, English, science, social studies, history. Right. That's, so that's not, that's not going to be the way that we do so it. So you're leaving them short change. Uh, or I, I'm teaching them the way that they should, <laughs> should be taught. So, you know, that I, I agree that markets are good sorting mechanisms, but that doesn't mean I have to personally like everything that market selects. And I do think that we have, we're missing out on uh, individuality a little bit and replacing it with conformity because of what because of the market demands. And, and I think that's where the market hopefully helps is that if there's deficiencies with the signaling thing that I just described with a degree, new innovations, new technologies are coming that I can signal it through my certificate that I earned with Microsoft or yeah. whatever, these alternatives emerge as equivalents to that sorting thing. And then employers start saying, okay, well, we'll take the degree and now we're going to enlarge the pile to those who have Microsoft certificates also, right? That'll be an equal way to get into the hiring pool. So are you guys going to take another question? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It is that time. All right, Lynn, what, uh, what do you have for us? And of course, um, Peter, we mentioned before, we have a lot of politics and um, economics. And you, not all economics really have to say the piece, but certainly the board, board Institute does. So I'm moving to, does separation of church and state even exist anymore? Certainly, I don't really want to get into the revolution's way, but obviously it's all it there. And then specifically the answers with the two, it seemed like the faith card was played quite a bit on what was uh, supposed to be a constitutional amendment. You guys would comment on that. You want to take the lead on that one? We, we did do an episode not too long ago related to this. And so uh, we'll put that episode in the show notes because we spent the 30 minutes kind of tackling a lot of those issues. But yeah, so I, I have maybe kind of a, a weird take on this uh, in modern society. I, I was reading recently, uh, I don't know if you call him a philosopher, Max Stirner, uh, who is like an old anarchist thinker. Uh, and Max Stirner, even in the 1800s, was uh, pointing out the uh, facts that he believes that basically all value systems are essentially religious value systems. Uh, and so at the time, he was pointing to uh, a movement amongst intellectuals in France, for example, uh, away from tr traditional Christianity 
Uh, but the, the, the scholar he was commenting on said something like, well, we can move from love of God to love of man and we can keep the love part. And what Sterner points out is, well, then you really haven't fundamentally changed the religion. You've just changed the deity. So I actually uh, am a, a little bit heterodox in that I'm not sure I believe in a separation of church and state, like in, in a true a true sense, not that I'm against it, but that I don't know that it can exist, uh, because I think that uh, church is a lot less narrow uh, than just like we profess belief in a God. I think there's lots of religions out there that don't claim to be religions. Uh, I, I, I don't really believe in unbelief, I guess is what I'm saying. And so I, I'm not too keen on the idea of separation in, of church and state being used in a traditional sense, because I think that what it's really saying is uh, certain religions are allowed to participate and other religions aren't. Uh, and it really just depends on whether or not you're willing to say, I believe in a God or not. Uh, so that, that's kind of my take on it is uh, I, I'm kind of a skeptic of whether or not we can have it. I think we need our philosopher to weigh in on this one. Um, if by separation of church and state, we mean the strict claim that the state uh, doesn't endorse or prohibit any particular religious institution or church, then I think it's certainly possible to have separation of church and state, right? Um, and then, uh, I mean, to talk about an issue like uh, proposition, whatever the uh, number two is a proposition to, or um, amendment to, or um, the Roe issue, I mean, when I teach the ethics of abortion in you know, um, basic issues in philosophy, we, we go over abortion, it's a practical ethical problem. Actually, I teach it in ethics in society. Um, the arguments for or against abortion on neither side do they depend on religious claims. Um, it's an ethical issue. So, uh, um, and there are very good ethical uh, arguments on both sides of this issue. So I, I don't see this uh, as an, an issue of separation of church and state. I think it's you know an issue about um, competing value systems trying to take over the state. And here's where I agree with Peter. I don't think you can ever separate uh, politics from value systems because that's exactly what uh, political systems do. So um, insofar as we as a country have uh, competing value systems, there are going to be huge political fights over those things. But if we wanna um, separate church and state in the narrow specified way that the constitution states that we shouldn't um, you know, endorse or prohibit any religions, that's certainly possible. But uh, I do think that, that that separation between church, church and state, that isn't going to solve our ethical dilemmas because we're still gonna to have to slug those out. Yeah, I might just uh, add on for those listeners who aren't in Kansas. So we had a pretty big vote and there was an amendment to the, apparently the constitution currently allows for abortion and uh, pretty much in, in flavor, I think, with uh, the way it's been in the United States with Roe v. Wade. And so their amendment was to put restrictions on that, of, at least open the door for some restrictions to be placed. And that failed by a large majority. And so to me, it spoke that uh, my old major professor said, there's nothing harder to change than the status quo. And I think we saw some of that because I'm sure you know, people did come out to vote. It was a good turnout. Um, you know, hey, if it's this way, it's this way. I think what'll be different is that with Kansas having other surrounding states that are uh, prohibiting abortion, uh, we're going to see growth, I think, of abortion clinics and abortions in Kansas is inevitable. And I think we'll see how the how the public um, feels about that um, if we end up being kind of a destination because we are in the Midwest where a lot of states are prohibiting it. 
I, I think that's going to be a natural outcome of, of that policy change. Uh, Kayla, what do you got for us? Um, so I know for a while we saw, obviously we see gas prices double and close to triple at some points. It seems like just all the evolving, but um, now we're seeing that we expecting to drop. Um, just wondering if there was anything kind of correlated to as to why it's dropping all of a sudden, because um, I just saw it continuing to rise for a while. So, since I'm being looked at now, uh, <laughs> here's my explanation of, of everything that's happened. I, supply chain issues are obviously a part of this, but I, I think the two biggest drivers actually aren't supply chain issues. Uh, the first driver of gas prices, I think, had to do with the fact that uh, the amount of money, like dollar bills and dollars in bank accounts uh, in the United States has increased by 30% since January 2020. We printed a lot of money. And when you print money, uh, that money goes to different people. It's usually like banks. And when banks have excess money, they lend it out more often. And so it goes into people's pockets. And then when people have more money from their loans from banks, they spend that money, right? And so if you print a lot of money, you're going to have more spending. More spending is going to push prices up. That, that's basically what I think is going on across the economy. Again, a little bit disproportionate because of supply chain issues. So gas is affected more than other things. Uh, but a lot of people will say, well, gas prices are increasing other prices. And I, I don't think that's true. I think it's actually exactly the opposite, that the demand for goods uh, is increasing gas prices. As far as coming back down, there's a pretty uh, basic rule in economics that I think understand or explains this called the second law of demands. And the second law of demands basically says that as time goes by, it becomes cheaper to find substitutes for goods. And so when gas prices spike up initially, let's say you're about to go on vacation, it's really costly for you to make new vacation plans if you're about to leave and gas prices like doubled. But if you have a vacation at the end of the summer, uh, you can do something else like have a staycation or maybe delay your vacation or maybe you have a vacation at a shorter distance away that you don't have to drive as far, or, you know, cancel your RV trip and, and take a plane instead. And so over time, it becomes easier to substitute for gas and so demand falls. And so we had a, an increase in demands driven by new money, and now we have a decrease in demands driven by uh, people substituting away from gas because it's so expensive. Uh, this is what happened to my family. Uh, we, we had a vacation booked. We drove all around, basically, uh, from here to the eastern half of the U.S. and back, visited a lot of people. Uh, and that happened basically just as gas prices were rising. So we really got hit by that. Uh, but we had already made the plans. We had RSVP'd for a wedding. There was no real way to get out of it. Uh, but now we're looking at vacations next year and we're saying, okay, we're going to do something a little bit closer to home. So, yeah, I'd, I'd add that I think there was a lot of pent up demand from COVID. And there was also a large increase in national savings. So people uh, actually had saving rates that were higher. Yeah. So they were sitting on their own personal money on top of what Peter mentioned of there being an injection of money. Um, and so those two things, uh, I think, led to a lot of travel. And it's like, okay, gas prices are what they are. And it continued to increase demand. I kind of, when I went on our 4th of July trip, I kind of felt like everybody was having this last hurrah. And like, we kind of knew the economy was teetering a little bit. And now we've seen a reduction in demand, finding other substitutes as well, but maybe a general reduction. And that has caused these gas prices to go down. I think there's also supply response. I mean, gas is pretty profitable. And so uh, those uh, people who have gas supplies were doing everything to get more gas on the market. And so an increase in supply, I think, contributed a little bit to those uh, falling prices. So falling demand and an increase in supply 
probably brings us to where we're at today, which isn't too bad at what three, I say too bad relative to where we were, but you know, maybe a buck cheaper than hey, we were. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a big significant. For a lot of people. Yeah. And it's also significant on uh, those who have lower incomes. So one of the things that we like to say in economics is that this is a very regressive tax. The poor get hit harder with that uh, price increase than the rich because gasoline as a fraction of their budget makes up a lot more of their budget. Imagine if you're spending $5,000 on gas a year and you're only making 20,000, that's a quarter of your budget. So it, it hits you harder um, when we have these effects. And so policies that tend to lead towards higher uh, gas prices will disproportionately hit those with lower incomes as opposed to those with higher incomes. Okay, Luke, what do you got for somebody online? Yeah, we had a question uh, submitted, and it was basically just wanting to see your guys' opinion on cryptocurrency and the rise and fall of that right now. Oh, I think Justin might need to jump on that one. Uh, <laughs> he's our uh, cryptocurrency expert. I have been a big fan of Bitcoin since um, like 2013. So I know... Uh, I've also been through, I think now, four of these big spike and declines. Um, I remember when it went from uh, $60 to $130 um, and then back down to like $20. Um, and then I remember when it went from uh, when it broke $1,000 for the first time. Uh, and then when it went on the run from $1,000 to $20,000 and then on the run from uh, 20,000 to 67,000. And uh, each time it re it has retraced to its previous kind of height. So it's kind of, the graph itself is really fractal. If you look at it, you can see the same kind of shape happening over and over again. Um, so if the question is, uh, is posed in a sense that, um, you know, is this, uh, is this crash, um, is, is it all crashing down? Um, I think there are a bunch of projects that get killed off in every single one of these crashes. And I think that's great because I think that um, the crypto space is a space that is full of scams and um, uh, what's called vaporware, which are projects that are just, you know, just have a paper behind them, but they don't really, there's no real tech there. Um, and it's, you know, similar to the way that the Wild West was extremely profitable, but there were a lot of cheaters out there, right? And so in each of these um, expansions and contractions, good projects survive. And so uh, I have a few projects that I'm very, very bullish on, like um, Bitcoin and Urbit, um, and then a bunch of ones that I think um, I'm watching them die. And I think that that's good. It reminds me kind of like I grew up surfing and someone's on a big set comes in and you're paddling um, and you can duck dive and then you can make it up through the other side and you can see like, oh, a bunch of other people didn't make it, right? And so I view uh, these market crashes as, um, you know, big sets that come through and just kind of wipe out some of the projects that I think um, aren't. Uh, particularly about so particularly Warren, valuable. Warren Buffett has a, a quote that says, uh, "We're all having fun swimming out in the ocean when the tide's in, and then when the tide goes out, we see who's skinny dipping." And uh, that is, um, I think, a little bit about what you're describing here. And it is a healthy uh, process. Um, 
with Bitcoin, I, I have a long position in Bitcoin. So there's a, a book called The Bitcoin Standard. That's a great introduction. And it should hopefully shed light on why every Bitcoin under the sun that comes up should not be jumping in price and people jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, the fundamentals of how money works, um, Bitcoin is, is it uh, in terms of uh, some of the properties that we'd expect money to have. Right now, it's not money, though. Money is anything generally accepted as a medium of exchange, and, and Bitcoin's not there. It's very speculative at this point, especially with these wild swings in value. But a prediction I made two years ago was that by 2030, uh, Bitcoin would become money. I think it'll stabilize. I think people will have an understanding of the bomb-proof nature of it, and it will be uh, much more stable and used as money in some capacity. I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but... Yeah. So the one thing that I think is maybe a little different, Justin, uh, from the in the recent spike and fall uh, that I don't think has been encountered much before is the recent fall of Bitcoin, I think, has a lot to do with the recent fall in a lot of financial assets. And so I, I like Bitcoin and what it is fundamentally. But I think the market spike to like 67,000 or wherever it went was fueled at least in part by the Federal Reserve money again that, that fl has flooded the system. That's true, of, by the way, all assets. Uh, whenever you pump new money into the economy, which is what we tried to do when coronavirus happens again, January 2020 is when we really started and it spiked up. The reason we do that is to stimulate investment. That's the reason the Federal Reserve, they, they, they say that, that's the goal. Uh, and this leads to investment in all sorts of things. Real estate is really common, financial markets, and I think in this last uh, you know, run here, cryptocurrency, uh, I think a lot of the push into cryptocurrency was actually by a lot of hedge funds jumping. You kind of saw this over the last time. And I think that jumping in, it was fueled at least in part, again, by uh, lower interest rates on loans from banks being fueled by new money. Uh, so I, I think, unfortunately, for the asset, it got caught up in kind of a, a we'll say, an easy money generated bubble, uh, kind of like we saw with the housing market in 08 and 09, and honestly, maybe today, today. Uh, hopefully not, but but maybe. Um, and so there was a little bit of that. That doesn't change any of the fundamentals. It doesn't change the fact that it, it could be good, but it also isn't immune from the same things that other financial assets uh, can experience in terms of uh, risk and amount of investment and things like that, uh, which I don't think you would claim otherwise either. Uh, but that's that's kind of the, the one thing is it's, it becomes more adopted. It runs into more of the problems that other assets have. All right. Well, believe it or not, we're out of time already for this 200th episode. Um, I'd like to thank uh, the people who came today and those who participated online. Thank you very much for helping us celebrate. So this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us. Otherwise, uh, be sure to forward along to your friends and family. We're on all the major podcast apps. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.